Well, tonight I want to talk about this idea, which is a very oppressive idea. It's the freedom to pursue our happiness. This oppression, this demand that you can be happy, you can be fulfilled, you can have what you want, is everywhere on television, movies, books, even churches. Churches can kind of do the same thing. They're kind of offering something that will give you fulfillment and happiness in this life. And it seems everybody is offering us something. Consume this, look like this, buy this, and you will be fulfilled. And tonight I want to talk about another possibility. Not the freedom to pursue what will make us happy, but freedom from the pursuit of happiness. Freedom from pursuing what we think will make us complete. And I think Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is great on this. I just want to look at verses 1 to 11, where Ecclesiastes says, look, I tried this and I tried that. (laughs) I tried everything and nothing satisfied ultimately. It was all a chasing after the wind. It was all meaningless. Well, let's have a look at this. I want to read that again, just verses 1 to 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to me meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, made reservoirs of water to water the groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This guy, probably King Solomon, this guy had it all, (laughs) but it wasn't enough. There was no limit. (laughs) There seriously was no limit to what he pursued Women, vineyards, slaves, wealth, achievement, houses, art, parks, music, fame. And in verses 12 to 16, he pursued wisdom. At the end of it all, he thought, is that it? Nothing ultimately fulfilled him. Oscar Wilde said something that, for me, sums up Ecclesiastes 2. There's only one thing worse than not getting what we want, and it's getting it. There's only one thing worse than not getting what we want and it's getting it. I think this gets to the heart of Ecclesiastes 2. What does it mean? 
Well, take one of the greatest treaties on the futility of human existence ever seen on television that I looked at when I was a child and it really impacted me. I'm talking, of course, of Roadrunner. Now, it's fascinating, the insightful view that Roadrunner has of the human condition. <laughs> Perfectly summed up in Wile E. Coyote's futile attempt to catch that bird and we watch him chasing, 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 but never, never, never catching that bird. And I would sit there and wonder, what's Wiley Coyote supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, it's just hopeless. Should he give up? Should he get a job? <laughs> you know, I mean, he's never going to catch that bird. But the problem with giving up is, knowing Wiley Coyote, he will just keep thinking about that bird. <laughs> he will just keep in his mind, dreaming of what might have been. He'd feel like he'd missed out. <laughs> if Wiley Coyote gets a job, settles down, has kids, all the time in secret, he'll be dreaming, oh, what if I got that bird? So that's awful. That's meaningless. But the other extreme is just as bad, if not worse. What would happen if Wiley Coyote actually caught the bird? Now, there's actually a YouTube clip where this happens. He's got this rock thing and the rock falls down, the bird runs under and it squashes the bird <laughs> and, the, and the bird is dead and he's just so excited. He freaks out. Oh, 20 years I've been chasing this bird and now I've got the bird. And the clip cuts to that night. He's with a friend eating the bird. And he says, oh, when you really work for something, when you really, really work for something, gee, it tastes good. <laughs> and it's great, it's great. But his friend said, okay, now what are you going to do? And Wiley Coyote says, oh, I don't know, I don't have any other interests, so I haven't trained for anything else, so uh, I guess something will come up. And then it cuts, and two weeks later, he's sitting there drinking beer, watching rubbish on television, totally depressed, and it cuts again, and he's serving burgers at Wendy's. And his life is horrible. It's terrible. And it's just as bad getting what you want. It's just as bad because after 20 years of chasing that bird, what do you do then? Is that it? There's the day after the kill and the day after that. And that's what Ecclesiastes is describing. Ecclesiastes got what he wanted. He got everything he wanted. And that was good. His heart delighted in what he had achieved and yet it was empty. It was nothing. Verse 11, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless to chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now last week we saw that the meaning of the word meaningless is puff of wind or vapour. So at the end of it all, all that he had achieved was a nothing that doesn't last long. Actually, Hollywood movies uh, offer a kind of a, a device. It's called the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is what all the protagonists and the antagonists are searching for in the movie. Uh, it could be a woman, it could be a man that they're all searching for or looking for. It could be revenge, it could be money. But there's something in the film that creates all of the tension 
and all of the action. Like Mission Impossible 3. In Mission Impossible 3, it's fascinating, they've got this thing called the rabbit's foot. If you saw that movie. And everybody wants the rabbit's foot. So the bad guys want it. The IMF team wants to stop the bad guys getting it, so they're trying to get it. Everybody wants the rabbit's foot. And what's fascinating is what the director does in that movie. Other movies um, usually name what the MacGuffin is. You know, it's $10 million or it's $100 million, whatever it is. But in Mission Impossible 3, nobody ever says what the rabbit's foot actually is. And the rabbit's foot in the end is kind of nothing at all. In fact, there's one point where one of the IMF technicians says, whenever I see something like this, I call it the anti-God. And I think this is clever. If God is everything, then the anti-God is nothingness itself. In other words, the rabbit's foot is this nothingness that is there at the heart of the movie that is driving and generating all of this action. In other words, it's saying exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying. We're chasing after, chasing after, chasing after what essentially is a nothing. I love the scene in Austin Powers, the very first one, where Dr. Evil, he finally gets the promise that he will be given, I think, $100 million or $100 billion, whatever it was. And there's about 10 of these bad guys and they all start laughing. In 24 hours, we will get the $100 billion. Ho, 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 woo-hoo. And they're all laughing and laughing. Now, they have this extreme pleasure. And normally, at that point in a movie, the movie will cut to another scene. But the genius of Austin Powers is it doesn't cut. We're left looking at these 10 or so guys laughing. Ho, ho, woo-hoo-hoo. We're going to get this $100 million. And as we watch, they're getting a bit embarrassed because they keep laughing and they're looking at each other and, well, this is a bit awkward. And and they don't know what to do. And eventually, one by one, they walk away. (laughs) And it's kind of a fizzle. And that's kind of the truth. The truth that whatever we think will make us happy and complete and fulfilled, when we get it, it's kind of like that. Is that it? Is that all? And it might be good, you know, but it's always, in the movies, they always stop when the guy gets the woman, you know. They don't show you six months later when they're arguing about dropping dirty clothes on the floor. Uh, That would be an anticlimax. They don't show you when they get the $100 million, they're on the beach, totally bored out of their brain, wondering what to do next. That would be an anticlimax. So movies always stop just at the point as people get what they were seeking. And the whole illusion is, of movies, is that there's something that will make us happy, will make us complete. But when we actually see the story pan out, we realise that's not true. It doesn't make them happy and it doesn't make them complete. So Ecclesiastes is saying, what if all these things you want to achieve, when you think about your own life, things you're trying to achieve, what if all those things that you're hoping for for tomorrow or next week, or next year, I'll get it finally. Whatever that is, what if all that's meaningless? What if all that's just really a nothing? And really, there are three options we're faced with, if you think about it, and then there's, of course, a fourth one. 
But the first object w uh, option would be get what we desire and then realize how meaningless it, it is. Second option is renounce it but always feel, what if I, what if I had it? <laughs> and that's utterly meaningless to keep dreaming of something you're never going to have. The third option is also meaningless, to continue chasing it but never receive it. Every option is meaningless. Every option has nothing at the end. Take, for example, three brothers. I think this will illustrate Ecclesiastes brilliantly. Three brothers all want $10 million. That's all they ever wanted, $10 million. Now, let's imagine the first brother sets up some businesses, but they fail, they don't work. And so he gives up and goes and gets married and settles down. The second brother sets up some failed businesses. They don't work, but he keeps going. He doesn't give up on the businesses. He keeps working, working, working. He continues to try and try and try, but never gets the $10 million. The third brother sets up some businesses. They work, he invests the money, and gets $10 million. Now, in each of the examples, they all get something. So that's good. The first guy gets to have a relationship, and it's okay. But in the back of his mind, he's always going, if only I had kept going after that $10 million. And then when he has an argument with his wife, he's thinking, I should have gone after the $10 million. The second guy, he just keeps using people. He gets sick, he has all these broken relationships and whatever. He's just pushing, pushing to get this $10 million that he never gets there. Now, there's a certain pleasure in that. If we single-mindedly go after something in life, that is enjoyable to a point. So he gets some pleasure. And the third guy, he gets his $10 million. And there's, a, of course, a pleasure in that. He can live where he wants to live. He can buy the car he wants to drive. So that's good. But all of them suffer as well. Even the guy with the $10 million says, is this it? Should I now go and make $100 million? Maybe I should do this or do that. And he's still not content. And each of them, in a sense, in different ways, experience sadness and melancholy in their drive to find fulfillment. Their drive to find fulfillment is actually destructive and oppressive in the end. And there, again, there are good things that can happen. <laughs> and Ecclesiastes does say, I delighted in everything that I achieved. But then he also says, but in the end, it was meaningless. It was sad. It was empty. It was a nothing. When Chris Ebbett won Wimbledon, anyone remember her? She said, you dream about holding that plate up over your head and winning a Grand Slam or Wimbledon, being number one in the world. And it's never what you think it's going to be because it lasts about an hour. The feeling is just so fleeting. You think it's going to stay with you forever, but the sun comes up the next morning and you still have responsibilities in life. You've still got to worry about getting flights home. You've still got to worry about paying your taxes, just like anybody else, to train to dream about it. That was cool. That was fun. That one hour after you achieve what you want and, and win the big tournament, <laughs> that was great. But then, you know, 
you've got the next tournament. And the more you win, the more pressure is on you. So what do we do with this? Uh, what does Christianity say about this reality of the meaninglessness of our lives as we try to find fulfillment? I want to just pan out from Ecclesiastes and look at the whole Bible, if, if, if that's okay. Three questions. Firstly, what's the origin of all this? Ecclesiastes is about life in this world, this fallen world. This world, as we saw last week, which is subjected to futility by God. Romans 8, verse 20. It's subjected to frustration and to bondage, to death and decay. This is the world that we live in. But we didn't always live here. We were once in the Garden of Eden. But at one moment we sinned. And we were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And at that moment we lost something. That was the moment when we first experienced meaninglessness. Because we no longer had this deep communion with God. So there was the original sin which led to the original separation from God, the original loss of meaning. We were cast out. So every child that is born now in this world is born into loss. And we grow up hungry for fulfillment, hungry for meaning, and yet nothing satisfies and as we grow, this just expresses itself in different ways. It might be, I want to make lots of money. It might be, I want to be famous. I might want to this or that. But nothing can take the place of communion with God that we had in the Garden of Eden. Nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy us and fulfill us. This relates to idolatry, secondly. An idol is whatever object we think will satisfy this whole within this quest for meaning that we have that's what an idol is the original loss the original separation from god generated the original idolatry where we began to search after something other than god and communion with god to meet our need for meaning and satisfaction we're all like zombies this is the trick, of course, of the zombie movie. It's really um, an analysis of human beings. It's not really about zombies, it's about us. Animals, they are the ultimate sensible creatures. <laughs> this has been proven. Animals will pursue their pleasure and avoid their pain in a very straightforward way. So if you put some really good food that a mouse loves and you put that food behind glass, and then you put some rubbish food to the side that's not behind glass, and the mouse doesn't like that kind of food, the mouse will firstly try and go for the food that the mouse really likes, but can't get to it because it's behind the glass, and then it'll give up pretty quickly and then go and eat the food that is not behind the glass. But they've done experiments where they've really mucked around with a mouse's brain so that the mouse starts to just bang against the glass and won't stop trying to get the food that's behind the glass. In other words, they've made it into a human being. They've humanized the mouse. 
The mouse has become like us human beings. Because there is a certain point where we humans, Freud called it the death drive, where we have this excess drive for something and we will not let it go. For example, crazy capitalism isn't just selfish. It isn't just about getting our own pleasure. If it was just about pleasure, we wouldn't work as hard. We'd spend more time with the children. But we work so hard, we drive ourselves into the grave because we're trying to find meaning. It's our idol. So there's this in human beings, obsessive desire, all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, are zombies. We're always looking for flesh. Fulfill me, fulfill me. I want to eat, I want that, I want that. And the whole point is, a zombie isn't just somebody who's died and come back. A zombie with, is somebody that has lost their humanity. All that's left is the drive. Only the drive remains. That's what a zombie is. So a zombie, in a sense, is what we all are. There's a little bit of zombie in us all. And when we say Jesus Christ is fully human, yeah, that's okay, but as long as we realize no way is he like us. We're not fully human. We've been infused by something inhuman, something that drives us beyond the limits even of pleasure, something that does not allow us to accept the realities of our life and just accept the life that God gives. It's the original sin, the original loss, which has given rise to idolatry. And even church can be pandering to this. Not saying, you know, we're not promising $10 million, you know, for people or this, you know, you'll get a house if you join our church or something. Uh, But saying, you know, certain religious activities and services and events will make you fulfilled. And the problem, of course, is with that. It's like Wile E. Coyote. Yeah, but you've got to wake up the next day. And the next day you've got to go to work and get on the train early. And so what was the point of that? Until you go back and get another hit of this religious event. Until you get slain again or fall over again or whatever it might be. We can be addicted to church hits, big events or hyped up services, whatever it is. Like someone asked, have you been saved? Yeah, 45 times. Every big worship conference, every altar call, I go back up the front because I want my hit of God again. And Ecclesiastes is saying, well, what if that's all meaningless? What if that understanding of God is completely wrong? Because it doesn't work. Whatever we do, we are still not satisfied. And we kind of know that, but we kind of don't let ourselves know that. So we just keep kind of going through these processes, even religious things. We keep doing them and doing them and doing them, knowing deep down that it's not really working. We're still not fulfilled. A bit like Coca-Cola, it's meant to satisfy us, but of course it doesn't. So now there's like, what, classic Coke, cherry Coke, vanilla Coke, There's all these other cokes that now are promising that they'll now satisfy you. Well, church is a bit like that. Basic church won't do it. Super hype church might. Try this, this new style of church. Uh, Do this, read this new book. Okay, this will give you what you need. Suddenly all the supplements are added to your basic experience of church 
which is supposedly bringing you the satisfaction that you know you don't have, but won't admit it. So we just keep doing these things, going to these things, searching these things, discontent in church, always looking, struggling, trying to find. And Ecclesiastes says it's all meaningless. How does this relate to us? Jesus defeats this whole thing, doesn't he? Whenever a a Christian says Christ is without sin, what are we saying? (laughs) We're saying he's not a zombie, essentially. The idea is Christ is the one who is fully God and fully human. That is, there is no separation between Christ and God. And so he is without loss and without idolatry. In other words, he's completely, he always was completely in communion with God. Remember his baptism. The Spirit comes down upon him. He's surrounded by the power of God and the love of God. My, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. He's enveloped with Eden. He has communion with God totally, and that goes through with him the whole way. The Spirit sojourned with Jesus. But then on the cross, he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the moment that he no longer experiences communion with God. That he steps outside of Eden, is cast out and experiences our God-forsakenness, our loss, our separation and takes all that upon himself, our idolatry, our zombie death drive, He takes all of that on himself and pays for for it all for us. And then he rises from death to triumph over the whole structure of original loss and the idol. The whole thing is defeated. Which means now through Christ we can have communion with God again. Last week we talked about new life in the Spirit. This is the true life where we really do come back to know God intimately in our lives and the power of God in our lives. And that's absolutely brilliant. We talked about it last week, but of course, just the taste. Just the taste. Not enough. (laughs) We're still in this fallen world. But what we experience even now in the Spirit is like the first deposit of what we will experience when the new creation comes. But what we experience even now is enough to free us from the pursuit of happiness. Jesus frees us from the zombie death drive. In the power of his resurrection and in the experience of his spirit, we can let go of our idols and be reunited with God, which means as Christians we're free not to be happy. We're free not to be fulfilled because we know God and that is enough for now and as we wait for the full fulfillment <laughs> that is coming. So this is the breakthrough out of the zombie apocalypse. This is the Christian conversion experience. We know God through Christ. It's enough. And we're free 
to not be fulfilled in this life. We're free not to be happy. And the trick of it is, of course, in losing all of that, (laughs) in letting it go. I don't need to be fulfilled in this life. That's okay. In letting that go, (laughs) indirectly we begin to feel more happy (laughs) and more content. We find meaning because we find God in a renewed sense every time we let go. And we know that Jesus is enough. We don't need anything else. And when we let go of this idolatry, or we let go of this view of God that He'll fix us, or that He wants our life to be perfect, if we let go of that, we can face the meaninglessness of this life and it's okay. So my prayer is, and uh, there's a lot to probably think through and digest there. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is not an easy book. But my prayer would be that we become a community where we're free from the pursuit of happiness. And we're free to obey God. That is, Our pursuit now is not for happiness. Our simple pursuit, says Ecclesiastes, if you check out the second last verse, our simple pursuit in this life is to obey God. And he will give us whatever he gives us. (laughs) So we can let go of anything else that stands in our way. We don't have to chase after any of this stuff anymore. What we do chase after now is the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is referring to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Don't chase after these things like the pagans do, but seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. And God will give you what you need when you need. You know, or not. He'll, He'll decide that but that's not ours to chase after. Ours is simply to obey him. Thanks, Lydia.